Welcome to the Healthy You Gatherings podcast. We are told in John 16, that we will have troubles, and Jesus confirms that by saying, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Healthy You Gatherings allows us to come together and explore complex and difficult topics. Find benefit in learning from the one who's overcome the world, who understands that a biblical perspective will help us find peace amidst life's everyday issues. Well, good afternoon. I said good morning like five times when people are walking in, so hopefully I get it right this time. Um, good to see everybody. Very excited about, um, about our speaker. Um, I know it's a tough topic, but I think you guys are in for um, a real good treat. Bob Gamble is, uh, is a friend of mine. He's a colleague. He's, a, he's an excellent communicator. I'm probably, probably setting the bar kind of high, Bob, so I hope you bring it today. Um, if you did not get one of these, let me know, and we'll make sure you get one. I know as we all walked in, just want to make sure that everybody got one. Um, um, I'm going to pray for us. We're also going to introduce Bob, but then also let you know um, that we have numerous resources, um, and I haven't talked a lot about it if you've been to several of the hug gatherings, but over here to my left, to your right, is a table that has a lot of the stuff that um, Care Ministries is offering in the fall. Uh, one of them is a grief share class, and um, I'll talk a little bit about that at the end. Um, and Bob is also available to you um, after uh, the, the uh, gathering is over, and he'll be back there at that black table that's kind of almost a little bit to my left right there at the back if you would like to talk to him um, uh, in more detail. Um, Bob, I just want to give you a little bit about his, his background. Uh, he is a licensed professional counselor. He's also a pastoral counselor. Um, Bob spent um, several years as a police officer. I think it was 23. Is that right? And then uh, Brookwood actually ordained him as the chaplain for the police department in Greenville. Am I saying that right? Okay. I should know. I was a part of the process. Um, and after he retired from being a police officer, he ended up getting a Master of Arts degree in professional counseling, got that from Liberty, and then he also has a Master of Arts in um, Public Administration, a Bachelor of Arts in Religion uh, from Auburn University, and currently now he is a trauma therapist. He's also He also works with first responders as well as veterans, paramedics, firefighters, police officers. He has experience with all of those as well. He's also trained in EMDR, which some of you may be familiar with, um, eye movement and desensitization and reprocessing, which is very helpful with trauma. Um, he's also a volunteer chaplain with the Billy Graham um, Evangelistic Association's Rapid Response Team. He's usually uh, the part of the crew that gets there when there is a uh, disaster that occurs, so like I think the shooting in Las Vegas. You were one of the first ones that were there. Um, he also teaches um, the law enforcement chaplain training program, and I could go on and on. As you can see, he's well qualified uh, to be with us today and, and uh, was very ecstatic. I actually asked him nine months ago, I was like, what are you doing in August? And he was like, oh, let me check my schedule. He's like, I think I'm free. I'm like, could you come today? And he said, absolutely. So um, I want to uh, pray for us uh, and pray for Bob as, as he comes and, and um, teaches us about grief. Uh, Father, we thank you for our day today. Lord, we thank you for 
just given this, us, us this opportunity to be here. Father, I pray that you will bless um, the work of Bob's hands, Lord, that you will speak through him, that you will give us what we need to have, uh, Lord, not just for today, but for the days to come. And God, as we tackle a really hard topic in grief, um, help us to realize that you are, you, you are healing, Lord, you are the source, and so help us to um, maybe get a glimpse of that today, and um, we just look forward to uh, our time this afternoon. In Jesus, in your name we pray, amen. Thank you, Gene. Gene's trying to give me a compliment saying I talk real good, so thank you. <laughs> well, I'm glad to be here uh, with you all today. Um, it is a tough topic, uh, and we're, we'll just spend about an hour or so talking about grief and um, give you guys some time to discuss it um, as well. I suspect um, the reason that many of you are here is that you've experienced grief or, and been through that type of thing, or I recognize some of you all as caregivers yourselves. So I hope that this will be helpful to you. So, get this working. Ah, just want to take a look at what grief is, how it impacts us, how we heal from grief, and how we move forward. Because grief is a process. Grief is one of the most fundamental parts of the human experience. We all are going to experience grief at some point in our lives. It's not something foreign or scary. It can be very painful, but it is a fundamental part of human experience. Um, many people try to avoid it. They feel awkward around it, but is a much a part of our lives as living and breathing. This is a um, definition of grief from uh, the Billy Graham Foundation. Grief is an intense emotional suffering caused by significant personal loss. Perhaps one of the best definitions I've encountered. It's very simple, and it speaks to many types of loss, not just losing a loved one or somebody close to us. This um, definition can be found online in Courage and Grief on the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association website, if anybody is interested in it. It's a very good pamphlet. Courage and grief. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those who are crushed. As I work with people that are going through grief, um, and sometimes the grief is very sudden and very traumatic, I can't imagine going through it without God. When I see my clients that are um, strong in faith, it makes such a difference. Because when I see clients that don't have a strong faith or any faith at all, it's a much different journey. There's a whole bunch of types of grief. I want to look at a few just to highlight um, what some different aspects or experiences of grief are. So normal grief. It's not easy, um, but it is what most people experience in a, in a normal manner for grief. It lasts a while. It could be a short while. It could be a long while but you slowly readjust to reality with the loss. And then there's chronic or complicated grief. This is when we get stuck. Sometimes something happens in grief. Something makes it unique and painful that we just can't get past. Oftentimes you'll see this when it is sudden or traumatic, unexpected. 
when there's unfinished business, things that have left unsaid, strained relationships, things like that, then that person is lost, that relationship is lost, and the, the surviving member of that relationship is left to deal with all of that. And sometimes that can lead us to a point where we just can't get past it and continue on with the process of healing. I'm very intrigued by anticipatory grief. This is when we know that we're going to experience the loss, but we don't know when or how, perhaps. This is often seen in terminal ill uh, patients, somebody that's been diagnosed with cancer, and we know it's terminal. And the grief process starts as soon as we know. Um, just to show of hands, how many dog people are, are in the room? If you're a dog person, raise your hand. All right. I'm going to use, <laughs> I always ask my clients if they have a dog. Because if they have a dog, then there's hope. <laughs> if they have a cat, that means there's going to be more sessions involved. <laughs> if they have a lot of cats, there's going to be a whole lot of sessions. <laughs> so I was having this conversation with a client one day, and I said, how many cats do you think, what's, what's the threshold of being a cat person, a crazy cat person? And I have a number in my head, he had a number in his head. He said three, I said six. Okay, you know, we could, we could debate that all day long. But I was talking to somebody one time that said their mother-in-law has 70 cats. And I don't know what your cut point is, but it's probably way less than 70. <laughs> so I'll use my dog. Um, until recently, I had two golden retrievers. Now I'm down to one. Um, I lost Buddy uh, back in April, and he was almost 15 years old. Just a great dog. Um, but Buddy had a great life. Um, he lost an eye to glaucoma when he was about five. And so I said, what do I do? Should I baby him? No, nah, let's let him be a dog, you know. And so I, we always go to the dog park. And the people at the dog park are cold-hearted. They would tease Buddy. They would throw the ball and say, keep your eye on the ball, Buddy. I said, you people are cold-hearted. <laughs> they said, how do you spell Buddy with one eye? <laughs> but Buddy took it well. He, <laughs> but he had cancer. He got old, as he got older, a lot of golden retrievers have cancer. And very arthritic. And it became evident that Buddy didn't have long. And so the anticipatory grief starts. And so I'll talk um, a little bit more about Buddy as we go, because um, a very personal experience. So a lot of times we'll be expecting, anticipating a loss. It could be the loss of a loved one through death. Um, a lot of people that have uh, illnesses like multiple sclerosis, I can't say that, MS. Okay, well, or Lou Gehrig's disease, stuff like that. You're seeing anticipatory grief because at some point they're going to experience disability. Um, retirement. Retirement can be very traumatic for some people when they lose the sense of purpose and meaning and structure. Um, some people think, oh, it's going to be great, but when they actually lose the, you know, retire, it's not so great. So there's a lot of ways that we can experience anticipatory grief. Delayed grief can be very problematic when we don't process it, when we don't deal with it, don't face it. And there's reasons for this. Um, men are bad about this. Men are, can be stuffers. I compartmentalize it and stuff it down. I don't want to think about it, talk about it. I'm, I'm good to go. 
problem with that is it doesn't get processed, it doesn't get resolved, and eventually it's going to come out in some way. It's going to come out in uh, emotional ways or physical ways. If we don't work through the things that we go through in life, it will come out. Sometimes the grief is delayed due to uh, situations. Um, we suffer a loss, but we still have a family to raise. We still have to take care of the kids. We still have to work our job, pay the bills, and we may not have time to um, grieve. And complications of grief. One of the biggest ones is traumatic grief. When it's sudden, it's unexpected, it can be violent, it can be horrible. All this can compound grief tremendously, just the nature of the death. But when it comes suddenly in a car accident, uh, medical, crime, those types of things, and it just they're just gone. And then you get things like unfinished business. I didn't get a chance to say this to her. I didn't get a chance to resolve that conflict we had. And you just and now you have to live with it. Survivor guilt. Sometimes this is very irrational guilt. You'll see this in combat vets, police officers, stuff like that, that I should have done something to prevent this. Two soldiers are in combat zone. When the mortars come in, one runs left, one runs right, and the one that goes right gets hit and killed. Now the surviving soldier is dealing with that survivor guilt. I should have done something to save my friend's life. It should have been me, not him. He had a family, I don't. I see this a lot in police officers. I should have stopped it. If I hadn't been on vacation at the beach with my family, I would have been there and I wouldn't have let this happen. In 1996, had an officer killed in the line of duty, shot and killed, I was there on scene. <clears throat> and to this day, my friend still carries this irrational guilt because he feels he, like he contributed and caused it because he told uh, the officer about the warrant that the drug dealer had. And he said, if I didn't tell him about that warrant, he wouldn't have chased him and he wouldn't have been shot and killed. And we talked many times about this. I said, you know, we'd talk to him. That's just what we do. We do that every day. You had no way of knowing. That's what we do. But he goes, I know that intellectually, but I don't feel it. And this is what I see a lot in counseling, not just grief, but everything. We can know something intellectually, but we often don't feel it, and we don't believe it, and we get stuck. Confliction. Imagine you're driving in a car with your friend, and a truck runs a red light, and your friend is killed, and you survive. Now we carry this survivor guilt, this conflict. I shouldn't have let this happen, and we're conflicted because... We're brokenhearted about the loss of our friend, but we're also glad to be alive. And that brings that conflict. I really like disenfranchised grief. This is the type of grief that society doesn't acknowledge and recognize. Dogs. I've had clients that have come to me because of the loss of a dog. If you're not a dog person and you don't understand that bond and that friendship, then you don't get it. Oh, you, you lost your dog? We'll just go to the pound and get another dog. It doesn't work that way. Oh, your grandfather died? We'll just go to the old folks' home and get another one. It, sometimes that bond to that dog, especially, especially if it's a service animal 
or a canine for military and police, that bond is really strong. Other places you'll see it. Um, you know, imagine uh, a married man is having an affair with another woman, and that woman dies. Now that man is grieving, but he can't grieve openly because it's not an accepted relationship, even though it was a very real relationship for him. And so he's left with that grief, and he can't talk about it and can't openly grieve. One very painful area that I've come to appreciate much more since I've been started to do this line of kind of work are um, miscarriages. Sometimes uh, people don't understand the pain of a miscarriage that a woman goes through, and the man too. Um, but so many people will think, well, you can just you know, get pregnant again. But they're carrying that burden of loss, and it can be very, very painful. Inhibited grief. This is, again, when we don't process it, we suppress it, we don't deal with it. An example for this is um, police officers. Police officers killed in the line of duty. Again, we went through the same thing in 2016. You can't just stop and grieve. You don't have a recording on the 911 line. I'm sorry, but we have suffered a tragic loss here at the police department. We can't respond to your call right now. Nope. Got to keep going, and I've I've been there where we've got an officer that has been killed in the line of duty, and we're answering calls later that same day. How would you like that police officer to come to your house if you needed him? Next day you come back to work, and the next day you come back to work, and you don't get a chance to process it. We have to take care of our kids. We have to work our jobs. We have to do all these things, and sometimes we can't just pull over to the side of the road and grieve. We have to keep going. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I want to talk about the impacts that grief can have on us, physically, emotionally, cognitively. And as we go through these slides, you'll notice uh, a few times that I've highlighted or bolded, um, actually I italicized and bolded a word, because it's a very common, hey, does this thing have a laser? <sighs> yes. <laughs> this is how I tell if there's any police officers in the room. If I go around and hit them with a laser, they'll hit the ground. <laughs> As I teach the, um, go around with, the, with uh, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, we go all over the country uh, teaching a week-long police chaplain training course. And I teach a section on PTSD and a section on grief, section on suicide, and a section on compassion, fatigue, and burnout. And it's striking that the symptoms of PTSD almost are identical to the symptoms of grief and also compassion, fatigue, and burnout because these things all affect us in, um, in the same way. So you're going to have all these symptoms, somatic symptoms, but exhaustion is the single biggest thing I see physically in people that are experiencing grief. They're just tired. They are drained. And it's not the kind of fatigue you have from working hard or not getting enough sleep. It is a bone-crushing fatigue that just permeates your whole being. And you just can't seem to find energy to do anything. It can affect our appetite. Often can't sleep. Shakiness, dizziness, all those types of things. Emotional. 
Again, guilt. So many times there is so much guilt associated with grief. And sometimes it's irrational guilt. Um, and in counseling, you try to get the person to verbalize this kind of stuff. Sometimes they feel guilty because they are mad at their spouse for dying of cancer. And that's not very uncommon. The spouse dies of cancer, and now the surviving spouse is mad at them, angry. You betrayed me, you left me, et cetera, et cetera. They know it's irrational. They know the person didn't do it on purpose, but they feel it. Anger is universal. I see anger all the time, and it's a displaced form of anger. It's not, you can't ask them, what are you angry at? Because a lot of times people don't know. They just have this anger all the time, and they're irritable. Anxiety and panic, resentment, all kinds of stuff. Helplessness is another one where you just don't feel like you have energy or the ability to make decisions or do anything. Shock, fear, and numbness. Just can't feel. Behavior, crying, can't talk, avoidance. So many times you see people try to avoid grief because it's painful, but that is the worst thing to do. If we don't talk about it, work through it, all it's going to do is make it worse and withdrawal. When people are hurt and wounded, we're like animals. We kind of isolate, but people will just withdraw. They won't leave their house. They're not going to church anymore. They're not being around friends, and they're withdrawing into their own pain. And of course, there's substance misuse or abuse, typically alcohol, but Nowadays, we're seeing all kinds of stuff way beyond alcohol. Cognitive, of course, disbelief. This doesn't seem real. Confusion. Grief impacts our ability to think clearly. And this is one of the uh, main pieces of advice we give people that have experienced grief, especially if it's uh, traumatic and sudden. Don't make any major life decisions for a minimum of 6 to 12 months because you're not thinking clearly. You can't make decisions that uh, would be necessarily the best decisions. We have a joke. Uh, well, a lot of times uh, when people are suffering stuff, they go through things, uh, men tend to go out and buy something big, like a truck or a boat or a motorcycle, things like that. Women tend to run up credit cards shopping retail therapy. <laughs> so we have a joke in peer support. I've been involved in uh, peer support at the state level for 20 years that if you want to find a good deal on a boat or a truck or a motorcycle, find a police department that had a really bad incident about a year ago and then go look on their bulletin board because you can they'll be selling it for a lot less than they paid for it because they go through this critical incident or something terrible and they say, you know, if I go buy that $40,000 bass boat, I will feel better. So what do they do? They go out and buy this boat, and they feel better for how long? About three days. <laughs> now they're having to work all this extra overtime to pay for it, and it's causing more stress, and then they end up selling it a year later for half of what they paid for it. Disconnection from self or dissociation. How many times have you ever felt like you're not in your own body and you're watching yourself from outside your body? It's like, I'm not even present. 
and it's it's a very very strange feeling, but it's not uncommon in grief. Preoccupation with the deceased and dreams. These lists could be endless, but I'm just giving you some more common things. And then the spiritual. Why? Why did this happen? Why did God allow this to happen? How could God do this or allow this? In the training we do and in uh, crisis intervention and counseling, one of the most important things we do is to get people away from the why question because it doesn't help. All it's going to do is make things worse because we're never going to get an answer. We're never going to know the reasons that this happened. And even if we knew the reason, it wouldn't help. It wouldn't take the pain away. Even if God himself told us exactly why our loved one died, it wouldn't take the pain away. And we wouldn't be able to understand it. It wouldn't help. Why is a disempowering question. So we want to get them off of the why question. And the question we want them to ask is how. How do we move forward from here? How do we live our lives? What do we need to do to heal and move forward? That is an empowering question. It gets people focused on taking action and doing things and not sitting around sinking deeper and deeper and deeper. Anger at God. It's very, very common, and that's okay. I'm going to give you a, um, an example. So that my partner I teach with, we live parallel lives in a lot of ways. He retired also from the Asheville Police Department. Um, and he went through some uh, pretty tough grief. After 30 years of law enforcement work, um, he lost their granddaughter uh, at four years old to a brain tumor. And he worked for seven years after he retired with the addiction and recovery and the rescue mission. And he hit a point. Uh, he said, I got to do something. So he went to see uh, a Christian psychologist up in Asheville. And he went into his office and told him everything he's going through. And at the end of the session, the psychologist said to him, I've got an observation and I've got a question. He says, for 30 years, you carried the burden of working in police work and carrying everybody's burden during that 30 years. You lost your granddaughter tragically to a brain tumor, and for seven years, you worked with all this addiction. He said, when have you discharged that? He goes, I never had. So he's been carrying all that and he hadn't let it out, hadn't dealt with it. It had been piling up. And he says, what I want you to do is go, find, go someplace where you're all alone, your backyard, in the woods, in a field, wherever it is, and give it to God in whatever way you need to. Yell, shout, whatever you need to. God's a big boy. He can take it. And he did. He said he went out in his backyard, lived in the country, and he just let it all out scream, yell, all that kind of stuff. He gives the description of, you ever see those um, cartoons where the, the, the big bully has got the little kid by the head and the little kid's swinging like that and he's just holding him like that? He said that's what he felt like to God. He's just like swinging at God. 
And then when he was done, he was healed. He had to release it and let it go. God's a big boy. He can take it. And then he was ready to reestablish his relationship with God. But it had to come out. Crisis of faith. I don't get concerned when I see people that are struggling with their faith after they've been through something hard. Because sometimes we have a very shallow faith, a naive faith, that's not been challenged by anything. And then we go through this, and we're angry at God, and we're struggling, and we're working through it, and everything that entails prayer, devotion, reading scripture, and as we come out of that, oftentimes we come out with a stronger, a deeper, a more meaningful faith, and that's good. So I don't get concerned when people are questioning God and questioning all of that. I find that a lot of people, they're not questioning God's existence. They're questioning if God, I can trust God. And as they work through this, they find, yeah, we can trust God. Prayers weren't answered. This is a real touchy one. What happens if somebody is dying of a terminal illness and we're praying and all our friends and church and everyone is praying for him or her to heal and survive and they don't and they die? What are we left with? God didn't hear us. We didn't pray hard enough. Our faith wasn't strong enough. Mm -mm. If we're praying against God's will, who do you think is going to win? If this person is, is destined to die for whatever reason, and we don't know what that might be, and we're praying against that, then we're left in a, in a pretty bleak area. So I, what I've learned in my, uh, how I deal with this, I pray that God, if it's your will, or if it's in line with your will for this person to be healed and recover, we're praying for that. But if it's not, then we're praying for strength and comfort and guidance. David, uh, my partner I told you about, he said at one point they had well over a million people throughout the world praying for Julia. Her story had gotten out, um, and literally a million or more people were praying for her. But it wasn't to be. And that's what, how he describes that. And they had peace with it. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am in distress. Tears blur my eyes. My body and soul are withering away. I am dying from grief. My years are shortened by sadness. There is so much grief and lamentation in the Psalms. So, stages of grief. A lot of people are familiar with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And so in 1969, she wrote this book on death and dying. And these are the five stages of grief that many people are familiar with. But there's a problem with it. One, no human experience is so predictable going through these stages like this. But one of the problems is she developed this theory while she was working with terminally ill cancer patients. So she was working with people who knew they were most likely going to die, not people who have already experienced grief. And when you think of it in that context, the stages make a little bit more sense. So the first one, denial. This can't be real. 
Actually, it's denial. Um, a lot of people add shock, which I would too. But that denial, this, no, 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 this isn't happening. This can't be real. And then the anger. Again, a displaced form of anger. Bargaining makes more sense if you think of it from the perspective of terminally ill people. God, if you heal me of this disease, then I'll devote my life to you or I'll start an orphanage or whatever that is. But bargaining can also be that second guessing and that guilt. I should have turned left instead of right. I shouldn't have even been in the car that day. I should have done this. I should have prevented it. And depression. Depression is probably the longest part of grief. And it takes many forms. And then we come to acceptance. So acceptance is just that. Okay, this happened, and I'm essentially at peace with it. I still hurt, but I'm not fighting it anymore. It is kind of a form of peace. We use the term new normal a lot in crisis intervention and grief work that a lot of people get mad. If somebody says new normal to me one more time, I'm going to punch them. But it's true. Life isn't going to be the same as it was. We're not going back to the way it used to be. It's going to be different. It's going to be not necessarily bad, but it's going to be different. It can be okay. It can be actually be, uh, in some ways, better if you come out like with a stronger faith. In some ways, you'll experience growth, but it's not going back to be the way it used to be. And so we come to this point of acceptance. I still use this some um, because people are familiar with it, and I think it does speak to some realities of grief. But you've got to really make people understand that it's not the stages. It's not going to be just like that. You can experience some or all of these at the same time. You can go backward and forward. You might be to a point where you feel like, man, I'm doing okay, and then you're all the way back into that part where I can't believe this is real. An example, um, Gene mentioned uh, one of the deployments I was on was the Las Vegas shooting. <clears throat> You're talking to people out there. This one guy uh, I was talking to, he had actually been a police officer and left that job, and now he was one of the event coordinators at the, at the, at the I forget the route, whatever, conference, um, concert. And so he was there when the, the bullets started coming in and he went into action. He was, one of the things he said, that uh, since it was a country music thing, they had wheelbarrows all around as props, you know, and bales of hay and stuff like that. And he was actually using the wheelbarrows to get people out of there, to evacuate them while the bullets are coming down. And I was talking to him for a while one day, <clears throat> and he went through, he went from denial to anger to bargaining and back, all in the space of a half-hour conversation. He says, this isn't real. And then he would be angry. And then he would say, I can't believe it. I just feel numb. All this kind of stuff. And just experiencing this wide range of emotions as we talked. As human beings, we want grief to be nice and predictable. But it's not. It's messy. It's complicated. It's painful. And it is very unique to each person. There is no one right way to grieve. Everybody is going to grieve in their own way, and that is the way it's gotta be. If anybody tells you you're not grieving right, or you should be over it by now, 
That's not right. It's a very personal experience, and everybody experiences it differently. One of the most uh, best terms I like are grief storms. We will experience grief storms. Over time, they won't come as often, and they won't be as intense or last as long. But years after a significant loss, that storm can hit just as hard as when it first happened. Another term I use are grief, grief booby traps. You'll be doing pretty good, and the next thing you know, it just hits you like a ton of bricks, just as you've stepped on a, a booby trap or a landmine. People come up with theories and stuff like this, but the reality is, it is a bowl of spaghetti, and you just have to let yourself experience it. I like these models because they give some framework to the grief experience. A couple of good models came out of the 90s, and I like this one, the tier model. So what, what this theory is talking about, there are basically four tasks that have to be accomplished during the grief process. The first one is to accept the reality of the loss. This is real. This happened. And you have to experience the pain of the loss because there's no other way to process through all that without experiencing the pain. You have to adjust to the environment without the lost person and eventually have to reinvest in the new reality. We're going to be moving forward. And so we take the energy that was invested in the lost relationship and reinvest it into moving forward. This model is the one I find most useful that I use uh, with all my grief clients. It's called the dual process model. It's very simple. It says basically there are two states of existence in grief. One is oriented on the loss, and the other one is oriented on healing and moving forward, restoration. And it's just that simple. There are times when we focus on the loss and we're actively grieving, and there are times when we have to focus on life and taking care of what we have to take care of. And it's simple diagram, that loss-oriented existence is grief work, intrusion of grief, breaking the bonds, ties, denial, avoidance, all of that. And then restoration, attending to life changes, doing new things, distraction, all new roles, new identities. The reason I find this so useful in working with grief clients is it gives them the ability to take some control of their grief experience, that they can consciously go into one of these modes. You know, I can probably get through most of the day now. I can probably go to work and focus on work, and I'm pretty good in the morning, maybe a couple hours in the afternoon, but then I can't do it any longer. So now that person can switch from the restoration-oriented experience and mindset to the grief-oriented experience of mindset, and they allow themselves to grieve. Otherwise, you're constantly fighting, and it's constantly trying to intrude. So this gives a way to have some sort of control of that. I find most clients, they're better in the mornings than they are in the afternoons, and the evenings are almost universally the worst. So some clients, they can 
there, and and I've most of the uh, the clients I've worked with, their employers have been very gracious. And typically, you'll see they'll work in the mornings, and they can be pretty pretty good in the mornings, and then the afternoons can vary greatly. Um, but in the evenings, that's pretty much when it all comes in, and you're actively grieving. Other counselors will do different things, like they'll say, have a place to go grieve, like in the tree in the backyard or a time and stuff like this. But this gives such flexibility and this gives real power to a person that's experiencing grief. Something I teach with this is called, they call the container exercise. And it's something to put your grief in and store it temporarily. So I'll ask clients, do you have something at home that you can put your grief in just to hold it for a little while? And they say, oh yeah, well what is that? Well I got this Tupperware at home. Okay, that would be good. Is it big enough to hold your grief? Sometimes they say, no, it's not big enough. What is? And I've had clients say, one person said, my garage. <laughs> you know, that's good. I can put the door down. One guy said, my gun safe. Oh, that's real good. Put it in there. <laughs> but the idea, it's only in there so you can focus on this restoration existence. And then you take it out on your terms. The reality is that you're going to, there's going to be a lot of bleed over. It's not quite that neat. I had, a, I had a client one time, they had, um, you know, those Rubbermaid things? They're black with a yellow top. And this wasn't, I don't know, use this exercise with all kinds of stuff. And even all kinds of things these guys dealing with. He said, I'm putting it in there. Good. So one day my wife and I were going to Lowe's, and there's a whole stack of them over there. And I, I grab her by the arm. Don't go near those things. You don't want what's in there. <laughs> A lot of people think if I'm not brokenhearted and actively grieving, then that means I didn't love the person I lost. But that's not the truth. One of the really important uh, things that we tell people when they're actively grieving is maintain your routine. Maintain cleaning the house, exercise, whatever that is, because there's comfort in it. Because you don't have to think about it. You can just do it and just maintain that. It keeps you busy, keeps your mind off of the grief. Then Jesus said, come to me, all of you are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. So moving forward, a very, very important thing to keep in mind is that grief is a form of love. We grieve because we love. If we didn't love, we wouldn't grieve. And that can be comforting. That can take a little of the edge off the, of the grief because I am loving the person I lost and I'm doing it through my suffering. The relationship doesn't end with death. So Buddy, my dog, my relationship with him didn't end when he died. He was a part of our family for almost 15 years. That doesn't change. We still have pictures of him and memories. We still talk about him. I find tennis balls. I clean the garage out this morning. I found another tennis ball. Oh my gosh. We used to have this rule, no tennis balls in the house. Because <laughs> Buddy was a problem solver. So he would take his tennis ball and stick it under the couch and then try to figure out how to get it out, which involves digging it out. <laughs> and then he would drive you crazy with a tennis ball. You know, throw the ball, throw the ball, throw the ball. Okay, no tennis balls in the house. <laughs> but grief is a form of love. We have to accept reality. The final stage of grief is acceptance, coming to that new normal, coming to that point of peace. 
and reinvesting in life, moving forward, the new normal. The train is going down those tracks. It's not stopping. No matter how much we want it to stop, no matter how much we don't want to experience this, that life is going to move forward. I don't recommend a lot of books. Um, there's hundreds of books on grief, but this one I do. I keep uh, a bunch of these and I just give them to people. It's called Good Grief by Granger Westberg. It's 50 years old. It was written in 1971, but it is still, in my opinion, probably one of the best resources for grief. Good Grief by Granger Westberg. He was um, Chicago Divinity School and medical school, Christian. Um, but the way he writes and presents this is it's just very, very beautiful. I'm just going to read you a little bit if I can find my mark. So he's talking about how people need to express our emotions and work through that and experience it and invest in the new reality and moving forward. The opposite of this is seen in the rich old widow who has acted strangely ever since her musician husband died 20 years ago. She has kept his music studio just as he left it when he died. She had locked the keyboard of his piano and has allowed no one ever to enter the room. Every day she stands for a long time in the doorway with her memories. She has consistently refused to reenter life again. She is known by all as that eccentric old lady. Knowing what we do now about the grief process, it appears that at the time of her husband's death, she was not helped to wrestle her way through to a new way of life. Apparently, she had few or no friends who were willing to stay by her side during those difficult days, and as a result, she had no one to encourage her to do her grieving in the normal way. She felt that her only friend was her deceased husband, and she had to remain loyal to him. That was why she locked the keyboard of the piano. <clears throat> She wanted no one else ever to play that piano again. At least she would be disloyal to the memory of the only person whose friendship she could trust. Rabbi Joshua Liebman's book, Peace of Mind, has an excellent chapter, Grief's Slow Wisdom, that speaks most effectively to this temptation not to return to usual activities, says Liebman. The melody that the loved one played upon the piano of your life will never be played quite that way again. But we must not close that keyboard and allow the instrument to gather dust. We must seek out other artists of the spirit, new friends who gradually will help us to find the road to life again and who will walk that road with us. In working with grief clients, I find that it's not really a complicated thing. When I hear of these things that happen at schools and stuff and they say, we have grief counselors on scene, what do they do? There is nothing to be said in those times, nothing. The only thing that can be done, that should be done, is ministry of presence, to be there. Let people know you care, let them talk, let them cry, whatever they need to do. But there's no information that's going to help at that point. Ministry of presence. So working with grief clients, I find that the first part of it is letting them just talk, letting them let it all out. Then there's a brief um, educational piece where we talk about what grief is, what to expect, stuff like we just went over. 
And then from there on, it's walking alongside them. And it's just that simple. Typically, the process, if it lasts probably about a year for a serious uh, loss, it'll be weekly sessions for a few weeks, then every other week, then once a month until usually the anniversary date. And once they're through that, then they move forward. But you don't need a master's degree or anything special to help people that are grieving. You need a heart, you need compassion, and you need to be there. Not just for the first few days or first few weeks. Because what happens? Somebody experiences a tragic loss and they're overwhelmed by support. They've got more food than a village could eat and all these people. And then that soon starts to trickle away. And a few weeks afterwards, there's probably nothing much there. And that's when they really need the help. And that's when you walk alongside them in any way they need. I came across this term, sacred space, and I've really come to appreciate it. Um, a good book I read um, is called Trauma and Transformation at Ground Zero. And what's neat about it is it was written by a chaplain at Ground Zero. And afterwards, they had done a survey, you know, months afterwards, of all the chaplains that served at Ground Zero, and they all shared their experiences. And this book has a lot of quotes from all these chaplains of different denominations and religious backgrounds of what their experience was working with the first responders and the rescue workers at Ground Zero. And so many of them talked about this, this sacred space, that that's what they were able to provide, that ministry of presence where they were not doing the work they were doing, but they were in the presence of somebody who cared. And it was a sacred space that gave them time to process, to release emotionally whatever they needed. And the stories are amazing. You know, meeting a construction worker. One story I remember, <clears throat> this one uh, guy's running a bulldozer of some sort, heavy machinery. And every uh, few hours or so, he'd take a break and go around the back of it, and nobody would see him for a while. Then he'd come back. And so he said one day, when he got off the machine, he went around the other side of the machine. Um, the chaplain went and checked on him, and he's just crying. He would work the machine as long as he could, and then he couldn't take it anymore, and he'd go cry. And that's the sacred space. You don't need a master's degree for that. Consistent support over time. Again, after those first few weeks, when all that support and everything is dying down, that's the time to be really intentional about spending time with that person. Just some practical support. The most, the most important thing is talking about it. Just encouraging the person to talk about it, what they're experiencing, what they're going through everything. Because when you say things out loud, out loud and you're talking, you are processing in a way you can't do inside your mind. We get into really dark places inside our own heads and we need to be able to talk about it and share those experiences. Encouraging re-engagement and social engagement and again, encouraging maintaining that familiar routine. And that's really what grief support looks like. It's very practical, very straightforward. There is nothing complicated about it. Ministry of Presence. Do you have time to sit with me?
what Martin said, I was ready to give up. I can't take the pain anymore. And he's talking about suicide. I just want the pain to stop and I was ready to give up. And then Chip, his son, called and he hadn't seen Chip in a year. Chip had gotten involved in drugs and jail and stuff like that. So what you're seeing here is he's reinvesting in the new reality. I'm not giving up. Chip has reached out. I'm taking the energy from the relationship that I lost with my daughter and investing it into my son and I'm moving forward as painful and as hard as that might be. Ministry of Presence. The Jewish tradition uh, has a tradition called sitting Sheva. And when a family experiences a loss for seven days, that family's not going to do anything. They, have, they stay at home and everybody comes to them and brings them food and just sits with them. And for seven days, the community is ministry of presence. And then after that seven days, they start to re-engage in life and they, they continue to support them until they, they are healed from the loss. But the key concept of sitting Sheva is that it's not an option. It is mandatory because the tradition recognizes we have to grieve. And in that tradition, they have to do, do this. Even that, no, no, I'm good, we can, no, they have to spend that seven days of just being in the grief together and being supported through the ministry of presence by the community. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain all these things are gone forever. As believers, we know that this existence on earth is a temporary existence. And it is existence that is characterized by suffering. And that is not to be avoided. But as believers, we accept the suffering. We embrace the suffering Non-believers see suffering as an abnormality, something to avoid. And I think this might be one of the reasons that you're seeing all these overdose deaths and stuff like that. People are trying to kill the pain, mask the suffering. But as believers, we know that meaning comes from the suffering. There's no place in the Bible, there's no verse that says everything is going to be happy because it's not. Again, grief is as big a part of life as any other part of life, and it's not to be feared, it's not to be avoided. <clears throat> and it's also interesting to keep in mind there's the difference between grief and mourning. Grief is the experience and the pain of loss, but mourning is the active um, process of working through it. And I think we've, we've lost something important in tradition of mourning, where women wear the black dresses, men wear the black armbands, because it's an outward statement that I am suffering, I am grieving, I am in a state of mourning. And it's not that we're looking for sympathy from people, because people don't want pity and sympathy, but it's a statement when I put that armband on, or that dress, that I am in mourning. And at some point, I will take this off. And that comes to that point of closure, of acceptance, and moving forward. 
Thanks again for listening to the Care Ministries podcast from Brookwood Church. If you'd like more information about today's topic or you need support, you can call us at 864-688-8355. You can also learn more about Care Ministries by visiting www.brookwoodchurch.org care. And make sure to check out all of our upcoming events and support groups on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash brookwoodcare. We'd love to be an encouragement to you as we walk together in a healing relationship with Christ. Until next time, God bless you.